passage this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. He tells us, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for the work that you have done in our hearts and making us reconciled to you. I pray now that you would humble us before your word, that we might be changed by it as we leave here. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for Teresa. Uh, Teresa, for doing the video this week. Worship team, phenomenal job today. Would you give them a hand let them know? Um, wonderful. And it's so fun for me to hear your voices just bouncing off the walls. You guys are the best choir. I've told you that before. Well done, choir. Bravo. Bravo. Uh, we're continuing our series called We Are His Workmanship. And today we're looking at uh, a text which tells us that we are reconciled. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. That is a good spot where you can camp out. We'll be looking at a bunch of texts today, and you can also follow along uh, in the outline with the outline that's provided in your bulletin today as well. Our culture today has various buzzwords that have become part of our public discourse of being triggered are you triggered? Okay. Uh, conveys the idea of a thin-skinned person who is easily and reflexively offended by a dissenting opinion. To be canceled, okay, for those of you who care, is to have a small but vocal social media uh, minority mob shut you down, cancel you, right? You've heard of this? The term outrage, I think this is probably the most problematic one because outrage has come to describe people's response to any opinion that they do not share, no matter how trivial. Let, let me tell you, if outrage describes your reaction to any opinion, no matter how small, like if you go to 11, no matter what the issue is, then when really important uh, really salient issues come along, where do you go? I mean, where do you go from 11? But outrage has come to describe people's response to any opinion that they do not share. And the next word is reconciliation, which we're talking about today. Now, I've heard the term reconciliation in our secular culture, in the dialogue and discourse in our secular culture over the last five years, more than I have probably in my lifetime. And this has just become a buzzword now. We need reconciliation, right? But this is a biblical term you need to know. The Bible teaches reconciliation, and we're going to learn about that today from a biblical Christian worldview. So it is vital for us to understand today that this idea of reconciliation, we need to understand it through the lenses of the cross. One of my favorite stories uh, is about a wee little man whose name is Yes, those of you who grew up in Sunday school, those of you who didn't, his name is Zacchaeus. And you can find the story in Luke chapter 19, and it's just the most hilarious story. And I think it's hilarious, not because the guy's short. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, you know, he is really short, by the way. And Luke wants to bring our attention to this. He's not making fun of him. What Luke is saying is, look, listen, everyone in this culture knows that Jews are, the average Jew is about a foot shorter 
than the average Greco-Roman and maybe two feet shorter than the average Norseman, right? So they're not tall in terms of, as a people, their stature. And so for this guy to be called in this Jewish culture short, he's really short. He's like Zacchaeus from Hobbitown. I'm not making fun of him. I'm just saying. He's really short, and people know this. And, and the other thing is about Zacchaeus is that Zacchaeus is about the worst kind of sinner you're ever going to meet. In this culture, for sure. And the reason that's true is because he's not just a tax collector. He's not just a guy who, who has turned on his own people and now are collecting uh, taxes and overage charges uh, from his own people for the economy of Herod, which people hated, which went into the coffers of Rome, which people e- hated even more. It's not just that. It calls him a chief tax collector, which means this little man is a kingpin, this little boss. He's like the boss of a tax cartel. And people just can't stand him, okay? And he gets worried, and he lives in a place called Jericho. Now, you've heard of Jericho from the Old Testament with the walls, like they had this, God sent this earthquake, the walls come down, they take the city. Well, this is a thousand, this is over a thousand years later. And now these people who live there, this is a, this is a swanky town. This is where Herod has his winter palace, It's so beautiful there. Only the wealthy live there. And so he is wealthy beyond imagination in this culture. And he gets wind. He hears that Jesus, the miracle man, is going to come through town. And he wants to see the miracle man. So he gets dressed and he goes out, but the parade has already formed. And the parade is people are lining both sides of the street as the miracle man is coming down the street. And if it had been today, we were all have our cell phones out trying to get like a picture, like take a selfie with him and me in the picture and then post it on Facebook or YouTube. And so everybody is trying to get a piece of Jesus. Everybody is trying to see him. But little Zacchaeus, this little kingpin, this little boss cannot see him quite literally over the backs and the heads of the people in front of him. So he gets a great idea. What does he do? He runs down the street, and he finds a sycamore tree, and he climbs up the sycamore tree, and like a little baby bird, he perches in the tree, and Jesus comes down the street, and he's thinking to himself, I'm going to see him. And then when people ask me later if I saw him, I'm going to be able to say, yeah, yeah, I saw him. I saw the miracle man. And so Jesus comes by and stops the parade. He stops, and everybody stops, and he looks up, and he makes eye contact. He locks eyes with Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus... I need to dine in your house today. And everybody just stops and goes, what? What? (laughs) And he runs down the tree and he's like, yes, sir. And he runs home and he gets his servants, like activates all of his servants. They begin to cook a meal. It takes all day to cook a meal. So Jesus, the inference is Jesus is there all day and he's reclining with this man, this sinner, this chief of sinners, the worst possible man, and he's telling him the gospel. He's telling him the truth. He's teaching him the word. And at some point, we don't know when, but at some point, Luke indicates that faith just welled up in Zacchaeus' heart. And that he just announced his repentance right there and then. I am a believer. And he says, and this is what I'm going to do to prove it. Uh, I am going to pay back half, half of my entire, the entirety of my wealth to, to people. Like I'm going to give it to the poor. And then I'm going to pay back every person that I've defrauded four times, which would essentially bankrupt him. But this is his declaration of repentance. And Jesus says, salvation, surely, salvation has come to this home today. This too is a son of Abraham. Isn't that what he says? 
Now, here's the secret to reconciliation in the story, because reconciliation just has to do with making a right relationship, putting things that were wrong back to the right. And here's the key. Reconciliation is possible when Jesus is at the table. And reconciliation, true reconciliation, is not possible when Jesus is not at the table. When Jesus is at the table, a man can be restored, a man or a woman can be restored to their God. They can be restored in right relationship to their God in Jesus' cross. But apart from that reconciliation, true reconciliation, the kind that God envisions for us is not even possible. And so we're going to look at this today. We're going to look at what the New Testament says about this critical, critical word. Number one, reconciliation is made possible by the cross of Christ. Reconciliation is made possible by the cross of Christ. So we don't want to miss this. Any scheme, any plan, any program that could contrive or engage in racial, ethnic, socioeconomic reconciliation is only an attempt, no matter how good the plan, to fix a horizontal relationship, to fix relationships between people. Now, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but firstly and foremostly, every person is a sinner who needs to be reconciled at the cross. Every person, the offender and the offended party. It doesn't matter who you are and what you've done. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, 10 and 11. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast, we brag in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. So notice here, he says you have to receive reconciliation. Reconciliation is God's gift to you. It's not something that you do with God. It's something that God does with you. God is the offended party, and you and I are reconciled to him. Now, he tells us five things about ourselves. From verses 6 to verses 11, he tells us five things about ourselves. He tells us in verse 6 that we are helpless, We are helpless to save ourselves. We cannot possibly save ourselves. We can't do anything to save ourselves. The second thing he tells us in verse 6b is that we are godless. What does it mean to be godless? It means to be without God. Whatever God is like, we're not like that, right? So we don't have that character and that virtue that God has, that perfection that God has. He also tells us in verse 8 that we're sinners, which means that we have transgressed the standard. Whatever standard God has commanded us to obey, we've transgressed that. We've sinned. And we're objects of God's wrath. He tells us that we're already under condemnation. But then in verse 10, he tells us actually we're enemies. Actually, we're enemies. You see, sin is not just missing the mark. It is that. It's not just way under shooting the target. Sin is also rebellion in God's realm. Sin is an active state of thinking that I am the final arbiter of all that is true. I'm the authority on my own life, and I'm going to run my life my way. So long story short, the news is super bad. On a bad and good scale, it's super bad. So what is God to do then with a bunch of sinful, godless enemies, a bunch of rebels in his realm? Well, God does, as the judge of the universe, set a future date. God has set a future date out in the future. It's called, the Old Testament and the New Testament refer to this as the day of the Lord. 
Now, if you read this in the Minor Prophets, it can be kind of scary stuff, but we see the New Testament picks up on this theme. There is going to come a day in which God has set a time in which he, as the judge of the universe, is going to judge every person who has ever lived, will stand before him, and he will adjudicate, he will judge every person. And he will declare them justified in his courtroom, or he will declare them unjustified or unrighteous in his courtroom. So that is coming. So you would think, well, you kind of deserve that. <laughs> you know, you've got that coming. And God is just, he is justified to have this day of judgment in which he judges the quick and the dead, right? So then God does something else. Before that day of judgment, before that court date, so every one of you has a court date. You don't know what day it is, but you will stand before God. So before that court date, what God does is he seeks to settle out of court. What he does is he, he decides, I have a great plan here. I'm going to send my son. My son is going to live a sinless, spotless, perfect life, Torah obedient life. He's going to die on a Roman cross, and the Romans and the Jews and everybody, they're going to pour their wrath out on my son. And he is going to take the punishment for every human being that has ever lived. While we were transgressors, while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? So he does that. And then he comes and announces to us, what does this verse say? We now have received reconciliation. So this gift of being reconciled with God is available to you. Before this day, before your court date, you can actually settle the case. God has settled the case. And all you have to do is receive what he's done for you. What great news. And so we learned that reconciliation is only made possible by the cross. Now, what does the cross demonstrate? What does it prove? What does the cross prove? Why, why would God want his son to die on a tree, on a cross? Well, God allows his son to be uh, crucified on a cross because it proves two things beyond the peradventure of a doubt, it proves, one, the extent of God's love for us. It shows us once and for all just how much God cares about us. It shows us once and for all just how much God loves us because God didn't have to do any of it. But God sends his best, and he sends his only son to come and bear our penalty. Hallelujah. So it proves that. It proves beyond the peradventure of a doubt that God's love is immeasurable. God's love cannot be measured. It's great. But it also proves something else. It proves just how needful we are of the cross. It proves just how sinful we are. How does it do that? Because Jesus Christ was the greatest man who ever lived. Jesus Christ was the most humble man who ever lived. Jesus Christ was the, the, the strongest man who ever lived. Jesus Christ was the most compassionate, merciful, godly person who ever lived. And what did his own people do? Let's kill him. We should just totally kill him. We should rid the world of him because he's a threat to our social authority. But they can't even find one legitimate accusation against him at his trial, so they send him to the Romans. And what do the Romans say? I mean, Pilate has a conversation this close to Jesus, like close enough to give him COVID, right? Like just close. And Pilate sees him point blank and, and says to the Sanhedrin, I, I don't find any fault in this man. I mean, I like killing people, but I, I mean, this guy's innocent, Send him to Herod. Herod looks at him and says, I don't want any part of this. Send him back to Pontius Pilate. He goes back to Pontius Pilate, and Pontius gets a great idea. He decides, I'll put before the people 
two options. I'll put them, one of the worst, most scurrilous brigands in their, in, in their prisons, a guy named Baraba, right? So he takes Barabbas, and he puts him out there, and he says, hey, look at that guy. Surely you want this guy. And whipped up by the Pharisees, convinced to choose Barabbas by the Pharisees, they choose the wrong son. They choose the wrong person, and they crucify Jesus. So the cross shows us just how utterly sinful desperately simple we are and how desperate we are for salvation. And then God demonstrates his love to save us. Here's how Isaiah said it 700 years. This is an ancient text. This is 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. Here's how he describes it in this prophetic vision. He sees it. He looks down the corridors of history and he sees it. He says, surely he, Jesus, the Son, David's son took up our pain and bore our sufferings, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace, reconciliation, was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, this son, this son of David, the iniquity, the sin, the transgression of us all. And that text 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene, it just reaches through the quarter of time, and it does today to tell us the full extent of God's love for us and our desperation for this man who dies for us on a cross. Reconciliation starts at the cross, and you can't have it apart from it. Number two, we are charged with the ministry of reconciliation, calling all men and women to receive the gift of peace with God. So now this is, the, this is our ministry. It's the ministry that God gave us. Whose ministry is it? Who has it? Who doesn't have it? Whom has God not given this ministry to? In 1 Corinthians, you'll find if you take the time to read that book, that's a really fascinating book because what you'll find there, if you take a highlighter, just take the time to go through it and highlight or underline every issue that's in that church that Paul has to address. It's, man, it's paragraph after paragraph. It's chapter after chapter. Every issue of division. The, the problem with the Corinthians is, is that too much of Corinth still is in the church of Corinth. And what they've done is they've imported all the problems, all the areas of division into the church. So they have racial and ethnic divisions. Jews do not like Gentiles. Gentiles do not like Jews, and that is a problem in the church. And they have male-female disparities. Men are being very aggressive in this culture, very dominating. Uh, they're expressing themselves sexually in a very inappropriate, unchristian, ungodly way. Paul has to put the gabash on that and say, you young men, get married, and all this. You know, so like Paul has to address that situation. And then he has to address the haves and the have-nots. He has to say to the haves, listen, uh, be humble. Like, when you come into these meetings, uh, don't be uh, exploiting the people who don't have much. So every issue that they have, just about every issue that they have, is surrounding an issue in their culture that they're dividing over. And what Paul says this is this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, you were saved by the cross, now your life needs to look like the cross. Right, this is your problem, you were saved by the cross. Like, the Holy Spirit convinced you that the message of the cross is true, but then your life is not being patterned after the sacrificial love of the tree, the sacrificial love of Jesus dying for others on the cross. 
And so this is what a person is. A person who is saved is a person who is in Christ. They belong to the Lord. They are the Lord's. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, so then from now on, from henceforth, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we no longer know him in this way. What is he saying? I no longer know you as a Democrat or a conservative. I no longer know you as a Jew or a Gentile or slave or free or male or female. I no longer divide with you over those cultural issues. From now on, I see you in Christ. This is what he's telling them. We no longer, even for you Greeks who look down your snooty noses at a Palestinian Jew from backwater Nazareth, who gave his life on a cross, you no longer look at Jesus this way from a worldly perspective. Don't look at each other this way anymore. And he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a person who is in Christ, he's actually a new creation. New creation has begun when people come to Christ. And the old has passed away, and and see, the new has come. And everything is from God. Everything you have is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Who did he give it to? He gave it to us. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Corinthians, to you, to me. So who doesn't have this message? Who hasn't he given it to? Well, he hasn't given it to world religions. He hasn't. He hasn't given it to Islam. Islam does not have this vocation. Islam does not have the job description of announcing God's reconciliation with the human race. They don't have this. Neither does Indian religions. Neither does the LDS faith. No other religion, no other faith system has been issued this vocation, this message. Go tell the world God is reconciling them to himself through the cross. That has been given to the church of Jesus And God hasn't given it to political systems. No government has this message. None of the three branches of our government have been commissioned to tell this message. We have. None of our parties have. And no entertainment industry, not the movies, not TV shows. Listen, I love it. Every time they come out with a new Jesus film or a new Jesus TV show, I actually don't love it. I mean, I appreciate it. Because I know if I had little kids, I'd make my kids watch it. And my little kids would learn a lot about Jesus. They would learn a lot about what Jesus was all about. And and I could lead them to a conversation about Jesus. But being a scholar of the first century, I cannot watch them. There's just too much artistic license. I don't think there's any way to tell the story better than this way. (laughs) You know, I just think that's what I think. So, uh, but no, the entertainment industry also, we do not outsource the gospel to them either. And we don't outsource the gospel to the halls of academia. It should go without saying that you're not going to find the gospel of reconciliation in secular universities, for sure. But you're also not going to find it in Christian universities. You're not going to find it in biblical seminaries either. Well, you might find the message, but they have not been given the charge to go out and announce the reconciliation of the world. They haven't been given that. The church has. That belongs to us. This is why Paul says it's the church that is the foundation and pillar of the truth in the world, not the academy. And so this message and this ministry of reconciliation has been given to the people of God. This is why Paul tells us, go, 
offer this gift, just compel men to be reconciled with this God who has settled out of court. Number three, reconciled relationships are intentionally maintained through great effort. Well, if God has called us to go out and tell people the good news that God on a cross has reconciled us, brought us back into right relationship with him, and to bring us into harmonious relationships with each other, then this takes effort. This is not easy. Romans 12, 18 tells us, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What does this passage presuppose? That sometimes it's not possible because not everything is dependent on you. But if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace. Live in reconciled relationships with others. Romans 14, 19, he says this, so then, let us pursue what promotes reconciliation, what promotes peace, and what builds up one another. We are to pursue it, and this takes effort. And and this is not just about tolerance. Now, Earlier in the book of Romans, he will tell the Jews and Gentiles, listen, you've got to tolerate each other because relationships do have to have a certain degree of tolerance. Now, we hear this word all the time in our culture. This is another buzzword, isn't it? And I think it's the height of hypocrisy, by the way, for someone to demand that I be tolerant quite intolerantly. Right? Isn't that the height of hypocrisy, right? You can't demand tolerance from me and then not be tolerant of me or my opinions. But honestly, I've got to tell you, I think, I think tolerance or tolerating people is kind of a, it's a pretty low bar, <laughs> relationally. I mean, I'm sure that my kids at my funeral, I'm sure of this. I would put all my money on this. I, I'm not a betting man, by the way, but, but I would say at my funeral, there, no one is going to get up at my funeral and go, you know what, uh, dad, he really tolerated us. Now, for sure, when they were little, I had to tolerate them. I mean, I would come home from a very long, exhausting day at work. I'd work late hours. I'd come home. I'd walk in the door, and sometimes, like, three of them are just scratching each other's eyes out. You, you, you know, the stress that comes into your life with, with that, with having a bunch of kids just loud and noisy and fighting over toys and stuff. And I would come home, and I would have, to, I would have a little bit in the tank, and I would have to tolerate them. But I think the, the arc of the story here, I think by and large, my kids will get up and say, hey, listen, dad, dad was not perfect. Awesome? Yes. Perfect? No. <laughs> listen, they will remember the good things. They will remember that when they were kids, they were always in my lap watching movies, eating popcorn. They will remember that I love them and, and that I, I did things for them, and that I was always there for them as much as I could be, that's what they will remember about me. You see, I, yes, as a parent, I have to tolerate my kids, but my goal really is actually to love them. My goal really is actually to show them the full extent of my parental heart and love. And this is what the ministry of reconciliation does. It's not just about tolerating people who disagree with you. Yes, threshold, yes. But it's also about extending exhaustively, extending the love of Jesus and telling people you can be reconciled to God through this God who loves you in Christ. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians 4.3. He says, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How do you keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? Well, it takes every effort. It takes every possible effort. What is the last thing, let me ask you, 
what is the last thing that took all your effort? What is the last thing you did that just took every ounce of you? For me, it was rebuilding my fence gate, which I won't get into for those of you who are new. It's a story. It's a saga. It needs fixing again. But, (laughs) surprise, (laughs) the last time I fixed it, I fixed it in in a winter windstorm. Right, And I determined that I was going to fix it in the storm so that I would know that it could tolerate the winds and the, the power of the wind in the storm. And, and apparently it couldn't. <laughs> so I need some help. Um, I'm taking volunteers. So, uh, so apparently it couldn't. Right? And I just remember coming into the house feeling exhausted. Just my body exhausted, my mind exhausted, my emotions exhausted because I was so angry at that gate. I was really angry at myself, my lack of competence. But think about the last thing you did, renoing a car or a house or a fence gate or something in your life and that just it took all of you. And when you were done, you were depleted. That's the word that he's using here. Make every effort. It's, it takes every effort to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who's present providing everything we need, all the wherewithal, all the resources for that unity. And the bond of peace. And so pursuing peace and reconciliation is hard work. And we must be intentional and we must maintain it through great effort. Number three, number four, the ministry of reconciliation includes the announcement and proclamation of new creation. Okay. So he just said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that everyone who is in Christ now is a new creation. Let's talk about that. Because I've listened to a lot of messages on the subject of reconciliation over the last couple of weeks, and I haven't heard a single evangelical pastor mention this point. Not one has brought this up. But this is biblical. This is in your text. This is in the Word. Star Trek is one of the only movie or TV franchises that envisions a utopian future. What I mean by that is When I was a kid in the 70s, I would watch old reruns of the 1960 series, the original Star Trek, which is my all-time favorite. And I don't like some of the new ones, but I like like the old ones. And I just like them. They're a nostalgia hit for me. Because I just remember laying in the floor with my dad and just watching like show after show. They would just put like the Star Trek marathon on, and we would watch them all. And so the whole idea behind Star Trek is they envisioned utopia. Like eventually, here's what we're going to do. The vision is we're going to figure out how to, how to eradicate poverty and, and racism and social divisions and all the things that, that really divide us. We're going to solve them. So it's a very actually a humanistic view uh, of the future. But typically, sci-fi writers do not project the future as a utopia. They typically re- project it as what? A dystopia. Dystopia is the opposite. It's a vision of the future becoming intensely bleak. And so it doesn't matter what the story is. I mean, there are so many, I couldn't even mention, mention them all today. It, it doesn't matter what it is, uh, whether it's the miserable world of Orwell's 1984 or H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, from Planet Apes, which is my favorite, to The Blade Runner, from the Terminator to the Matrix or Wally, that's one of my favorites as well. Authors, sci-fi authors, have a lot of fun imagining the world as a bleak post-nuclear fallout society where anarchy rules, people struggle for mere survival, Earth's resources are incredibly depleted, 
And our own technology has turned against us and is trying to rule us or eradicate us. And I love it because you'll hear them say, but in a world where injustice reigns, one man, you know, you've heard that trailer. (laughs) Now, it might be true that the world is going to get a little worse (laughs) in the future before it gets better. But I'm here to tell you, the Christian vision of the world to come, it's not humanistic, and it's not really utopia. What it is, it's the kingdom of God come to earth. Like the Christian vision of the world to come is new creation. You can read about this in Isaiah 60 through 66. And you can read about it again in Revelation chapters 19 through 22. And right here in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, he says this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. So we learn that through the shed blood of Jesus on a cross, what do we learn? That you and I personally are reconciled in relationship to God, but then God is going to reconcile all creation, everything, invisible and visible, in heaven and on earth. God is going to bring the entirety of creation back, and he's going to renovate the world. Romans eight nineteen through 21 Paul says this, for the creation eagerly awaits. Now here he's using creation in personified terms, which is something he likes. It's a device he likes to do in Romans a lot. He says, for the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed, sons and daughters. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So what Paul is teaching there is this, is that God wants to reconcile every human being, every person to himself in the cross, but ultimately he's going to also renovate the world. He's going to reconcile the world. So you're not going to spend eternity in heaven. You're not. Christians say this all the time. Read the end of the story. The new Jerusalem is coming out of heaven, and you and I are going to be resurrected in brand new physical bodies, and we're going to inhabit a brand new resurrected world, a world that undergoes the same kind of resurrection. Don't think for one second that God has any plans to discard his good world. Go back and read Genesis chapter 1. Everything that God makes, when God says, let there be light, he steps back and says, hmm, that's good. He doesn't say that's evil. The world is not evil. The world is in a state of decay. You and I are in a state of fallenness, but eventually he's going to renovate the world. He's going to resurrect it. And you and I in resurrected bodies will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth, literally heaven on earth, with Christ reigning from the new Jerusalem. And so this is the Christian worldview. And this is what I want to encourage you with. If you have friends who are just absolutely hysterical over the fact that we are destroying our planet, the ecosystem of our planet. Listen, we should not be doing that. We should not be doing that because if you read our vocation in Genesis 1 and 2, it's pretty clear that we have been called to be stewards of this planet. (laughs) We're called to be sanctified, holy ecologists, to take care of the ecosystem that God has planted us in and put us in. Sure. But if you've got people in your life who are just hysterical about the environment, listen, give them a Christian worldview. 
Help them to understand this is part of the Christian worldview that God is going to bring us, all who are in Christ, back into this environment that he is going to rent up. Help them to see it. And give them, and if you've got people in your life today who just, I mean, they're upset about racial reconciliation, they should be. It's a terrible thing. Racism is a terrible thing. But listen, ultimately, every racist is a sinner and needs to go to that cross and receive forgiveness from Jesus. That's how you write the world. You write the world in the cross, not apart from it. When Jesus is at the table, reconciliation is possible. So to recap today, while we were helpless, sinners, enemies of the cross, God sent his son to demonstrate the full extent of his love and the utter sinfulness of sin. And we no longer identify as people from a worldly perspective. Brothers and sisters, we no longer see them that way. We see them as lost or found, and if they're found, they're brothers and sisters. And we don't divide over the myriad of things that divide our culture and our world. And living in reconciled relationships takes every scintilla. It takes every effort for us to reach out and build the bridge, and to welcome people into a reconciled relationship with Christ, and to maintain those. And do not think for one second that God is going to, going to throw away the world. He isn't going to do that. New creation is coming. And by the way, the sign of it is you. You are the sign. You are a walking, talking sign of new, the project of new creation being completed because God has already started it in your heart by transforming us by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. God, we just want to thank you for this amazing perspective. And we live in a culture where the miasma just, they just breathe this toxic air of division. And yet you have taken all these people, Jew and Gentile, from various ethnic backgrounds, and you have taken people from various economic uh, statuses and backgrounds, and you have taken male and female and all of us and brought us together in the cross. And Lord God, would you help us, would you light a fire under us today to share this world-writing salvation this hopeful vision of your salvation with a world that is lost and really hurting, really suffering under deception. God, would you help us to share it? Would you give us opportunities? Lord, we just pray for just appointments on our schedule that you know about but we don't know about. Would you help us to be bold and to share this vision of God's reconciliation project with the world, starting with us, starting with people who are lost and sinners? Give us the words to say by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would bring many sons and daughters to glory through our testimony in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.